Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast. Today on the pod, taxpayer fatigue. Will Metro Vancouver actually rework its budget to give households a break from skyrocketing tax increases? Plus, parking pause. Will increasing traffic and reducing parking rates actually help struggling Chinatown businesses? And should Victoria be bigfooting local government when it comes to getting social housing built in cities? Plus, in a busy 24-7 world, we look at the challenges of navigating Ramadan. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. A local story that has uh, been part of the conversation, broader part of the conversation when it comes to uh, safety and security in Vancouver. Vancouver Council recently announced that parking costs will be cut dramatically in Chinatown to help entice more people into the troubled neighbourhood. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Vancouver City Council Sarah Kirby-Young. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me back. So, uh, first and foremost, how much of an impact do you think this will have? Uh, well, we hope it's going to have a positive and a big impact. We've been doing a lot of work in Chinatown, as you know, in investing. Uh, the uplifting Chinatown motion was at the first council meeting. Uh, so I think that really signifies how important the revitalization of Chinatown is to this mayor and council. And uh, we've taken a number of steps, such as investing in public safety. Um, you're seeing some of the additional investment in street cleaning and sanitation, um, some great events coming back and new museum opening. And so this is another way for us to support the small business. And it's something that we're piloting to see if it's going to have that impact that we hope. So what are the street parking rates now? Well, the street parking, it's really interesting. When you look at Vancouver, there's about 854 blocks that are metered across the city of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And about 50% of those are a dollar an hour. Um, What you see in Chinatown in the core area in those few blocks is they did have the higher rates of sort of, you know, five, six dollars an hour, um, which which gives people a perception that it's really expensive. And the merchants are worried that that's deterring people. But, of course, they still want to make sure that we're charging for parking and you're seeing that turnover. Um, And so what this will do is equalize instead of the rates changing block by block, or it could be five dollars in one block, four dollars in another, three dollars somewhere else. Um, it'll equalize it across the board, so you'll see $2 from 9 in the morning till 10 at night, regardless mm-hmm. of day of the week or time of day. Does the city take a financial hit uh, because of this uh, policy change? Uh, yeah, we uh, do anticipate that we'll see a reduction in revenues of about $350,000, and this is a, a pretty significant step uh, to support Chinatown and the business, but it also gives us the opportunity to pilot um, this through the end of 2024 and see if this is something where... You know, we don't get so fine-grained where we're actually um, charging and changing rates block by block, but that we can actually have a strategy that might potentially support and apply to other neighbourhoods as well. Um, you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, some of the other things that you the city's been doing. I, I, I think back to prior to the last uh, civic election uh, and uh, those uh, reviews of Chinatown from tourists. I can't remember what, what the site was. Um, and they were just um, quite stark in regards to people's views and perceptions of Chinatown. That is, it, it basically was viewed as a no-go zone. Do you think things have changed even now with what your council or your colleagues have done at this particular point? Or do you think there's a lot more to do? Yeah, I come from the tourism sector. And I think what you're referring to is a lot of the TripAdvisor reviews mm-hmm. that people will look at. And, you know, they're similar travel review sites in terms of making their decisions around which destinations they're going to visit and then even once they arrive at a destination which neighborhoods they're going to go to and i can absolutely tell you as a former director of marketing for destination vancouver that those reviews matter they have they make a huge difference in terms of where people are going to go and spend their time 
um, and their dollars, quite frankly, when they come into our city. So um, we're starting to see, I think, a really positive uplift, hearing positive things from merchants that they're seeing that the streets feel cleaner. Um, they're seeing the benefit of that investment, and I think there's optimism. Um, we've still got a lot of work ahead of us. Um, we're not uh, naive about that, but uh, I feel like we're getting on the right track. Uh, do you think the city, and, and this is perhaps maybe part of what council does or doesn't do, but do you think the city needs a new marketing campaign just because of what we've been witnessing the last couple of years? Uh, well, I think you've heard Mayor Sim talk about swagger. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about is one thing, is bringing it back is another, right? So... Well, I mean, you have swagger or you don't, but I, I think on a serious note that we need key champions for our city. And again, you know, I used to promote the city and encourage people to come here. And I think the job of council is to also promote the city and create great economic conditions for investment. So it's good jobs for people. It's a great and vibrant city to live in. And if it's a fun and vibrant city to live in, people will also want to visit it. Um, so, you know, you, you see us supporting the film industry, um, you know, Creative BC and our music industry, looking at uh, opportunities to bring major events here. We've got uh, FIFA coming. We've got Invictus uh, World Games coming in 2025. So these are all things that uh, really boost our tourism sector um, and as well as the vibrancy of our city as a whole. Is there been any talk about reducing parking generally across the city? Not that, you know, I know governments don't want to give up revenue, but, you know, when you're put, being charged $5 an hour to, to park, you, you could almost put it in pay parking, uh, underground parking somewhere. Why does parking need to be so high in this city? Well, it is a balance um, in terms of making sure that you have turnover um, and keeping folks moving so that you can have you know different customers, shopping local businesses coming in and out, and also making sure that we utilize our off-street parking because uh, we do have a lot of um, underutilized parkades across the city of Vancouver. One of the things that we've been committed to is really utilizing public space. So you've seen us have conversations uh, such as around the Granville Promenade and looking at the opportunity to pedestrianize those streets. Um, doing that, whether that might be the gravel promenade or perhaps we'll have a conversation coming up shortly about Gastown um, and the ability to make that more pedestrian friendly, that does require a reallocation of street space, things like the street front patios. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a real balance between managing the on-street and the off-street parking um, and making sure that it's a public asset can be used both for people that need the convenience to get somewhere, but also for people to enjoy in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Always pleasure news that broke a couple of hours ago. We're chasing it. Uh, it is a fluid situation, but the Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project uh, has been tentatively approved by the federal government. Uh, that project would essentially increase capacity uh, of the uh, Vancouver port by 50%. Uh, the approval means a new three-berth marine container terminal would be constructed in deep subtitle waters out in Tawasson. There's been significant uh, opposition and concern over this project. It is subject to 370 legally binding conditions. Uh, Federal uh, Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, Natural Resource Minister Mr. Wilkinson, uh, will be joining us at 5 p.m. to talk about this approval. But joining us now is Stephen uh, Stark. He's the CEO of the Tawasson Shuttles, and he's also a member of the Tawasson First Nations community. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me here today. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to make sure we heard from as many voices as we possibly could. I know you were very concerned about this uh, project. Your thoughts on this approval, first and foremost? Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, It's not a big shocker to me, considering that the decision makers actually don't live here, uh, and 95% of them are elsewhere. And so... You know, I don't think that uh, they've fully taken in consideration the impact that it's going to have with the Indigenous community living on the front lines. And to me, it's almost like um, the old days of sacrificing uh, 
uh, in the indigenous communities again and not really listening to our voice and and um, you know I can tell you that there's a bit of a disconnect between its members and its and its Tawasan First Nation government while well, the government has an obligation binding obligation of the 2004 MOU agreement that we couldn't oppose it as a government but you know knowing what we know now today about environmental impacts and cultural and and other economic and social um, benefits out of what we are doing as a community, you know, there just wasn't enough information to, to definitively make a decision. I think Minister Wilkinson did say that the that the project have, did have, quote, active support from the Musqueam First Nation and satisfaction, in quotes, from the Tawasan First Nations in regards to some of the mitigation measures. But for you specifically, in regards to the environmental concerns, explain to me why you do not want to see the approval, you didn't want to see the approval of this particular expansion. Yeah, so, you know, the environmental impact is going to have a direct impact on our Tawasan culture, particularly pertaining towards active crabbers that have been there for, you know, decades and decades of crabbing. So there's going to be no mitigating factors. And out of those 207 or 307 that I haven't fully seen just yet, mm-hmm. I'd like to understand how they're actually going to mitigate the impact on juvenile crabs. Uh, do you think there should be expansion? I mean, it's not like this province in this country aren't growing, that we will need an expansion of our port. We are a West Coast city. Uh, if if you did not want to see the ex- this expansion here in Tawasan, one could argue, well, Van- you don't want more trucks in Vancouver. You have the... Um, you have the South Fraser Perimeter Road there in Tawasan that can get goods and services down to Highway 99, then south of the border, or on to Highway 1 to the rest of the country. If we do not put it there, where do you think this port should have gone in your mind? Well, I don't think Greater Vancouver is the specific place for this enhancement. It could have been put up to Prince Rupert, uh, up to there, where... Mm-hmm. You know, but again, there is travel cost and there is other factors for highway expansions and whatnot. And so, you know, I can understand and I can appreciate the values of why it would be in Greater Vancouver because it is the hub. But almost every organization has opposed this project in B.C., all the unions, Mm -hmm. well, Indigenous communities may, the leaders of Indigenous communities have approved the project or gave consent, they're saying that they're not actively in favor of the project. And to me, you cannot occupy two seats at the same time. Mm-hmm. You, as in any Indigenous community and government, they need to make a position. Either you give consent or you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this mean moving forward for you? Does does this fight end or do you continue or do you yourself and, and many other organizations plan to continue the opposition? What What happens next now? Well, it's going to be interesting to see what the next moves are going to be because I still have to read the 307 conditions. And, you know, honestly, where does the federal government plan on getting this funds? Who's going to be the port operator? And can it even proceed to construction? Right. so there's still a lot of, you know, slews of questions that need to be answered before I think this project will ever get lifted off the ground. I always knew that the approval would probably go through, but it is still a heavy lift. Uh, what does this mean for your communities? You've, you've a couple times now have mentioned uh, what you know obligation um, First Nations governments have uh, to their members. What does this mean for your community? Uh, I'm sure there were some who support the port's approval, and officially the government has it. They've accepted at least uh, some of the comments that the, the, the port has made. What will this mean for your community in regards to your individual members and the ability to, to sort of uh, you know move forward? Well, and that's 
definitely going to be a big question that uh, Tawasin First Nation government is going to have to answer to its people because currently there's a petition going on and uh, I can tell you that there's probably about anywhere from 40 to 50 Tawasin members that live on Tawasin that have actively signed that petition not in favour of the project. So there has to be answers, mitigating factors and, you know, how are they going to help the crabbers move on to other viable opportunities moving forward as well, right? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Stark, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Now, this show does have a bit of a nautical theme. There was no plan, of course. But do you all remember the Albion Ferry? That was the passenger and vehicle ferry service that sailed uh, on the Fraser River between Maple Ridge and Langley in, uh, in, in here in BC from 1957 to 2009. Uh, it was, of course, replaced by the $800 million Golden Ears Bridge, which sees about 30,000 vehicles per day um, uh, once the uh, toll was taken off in 2017. Joining me now is Maple Ridge City Councilor Ahmed Youssef, who wants to, I wouldn't say replicate the Albion Ferry, but probably modernize or bring something that's very similar to the Albion Ferry, although an electric version of it. Uh, Minister, uh, sorry, Councillor Yusuf, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So where did this idea come from? Uh, we just have shut down the Albion Ferry not too long ago. It was only 2009. And now you want to bring something back, but obviously a, a, an electric version of this. Why, do you, why is that needed? Uh, it's certainly needed because of what we're seeing today and the rapid uh, climate changes that we're seeing. First off, it's not a an Albion Ferry 2.0. It's quite different. It's a river bus concept that is based on my experience having grown up in Egypt, in Cairo, where we utilize the river for transportation of goods and humans, and then seeing the same model replicated throughout the world, both in London, in, in Holland, and down in Australia. Uh, so the, the all-electric boats that are designed and manufactured right here in Kelowna, B.C., mm-hmm. uh, afford us the ability to have our investment dollars stay within the province, and at the same time, it incorporates the mass transit, the tourism and community building and reconciliation, most importantly, into our daily commutes. Imagine, if you will, floating along the river in a comfortable, silent vessel, because these are all electric vessels. They're not polluting. They're not producing vibration. Mm -hmm. uh, They are uh, zero emissions. And as you're going uh, down the river, it's about a 20-minute voyage from, let's say, Maple Ridge down to uh, New Westminster. Uh You're able to uh, have a visage of the greenery and of the water. The alternative, of course, is quite literally seeing red as you're sitting in traffic looking at the taillights of the vehicle in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, being on the same boat with others uh, will spark conversations, will lend to forging those human bonds and allow us to really connect with one another, something that the, the pandemic has proven to us is, is desperately needed. So just to uh, confirm, it, though, that it, so it's a passenger, it would be passenger only, no vehicles. Yes, passenger only, no vehicles. And the initial route would connect communities along the Fraser River in the lower mainland to TransLink hubs, to SkyTrain and bus services uh, that in other municipalities that can then uh, connect individuals to where they need to be. So we're talking about connecting Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, Port Coquitlam, Surrey, and New West by utilizing this pristine highway that requires no maintenance, 
paving or de-icing. It would significantly reduce the entire region's carbon footprint by taking cars off the roads. Not only are we taking uh, internal combustion engine cars off the roads, but even electric vehicles that occupy the same amount of space as uh, ICE uh, vehicles, as they're called now, they run on the same type of tires uh, made from fossil fuels. They use the same braking systems, again, carbon-based, and watching them occupy the HOV lane while being predominantly single occupancy uh, does not make a lot of sense to me. And that's what sparked my thinking and what can we do that would be better and we have as i said this pristine highway right here that we can utilize without having to really put much effort into its maintenance do you think the technology if i may yeah go ahead i'll let you finish i just wanted to speak to the reconciliation piece Mm -hmm. which is quite important by incorporating First Nations and bands along the river in this project, they would have the opportunity to purchase and invest in the vessels themselves, and they would be able to paint uh, the, the vessels in their traditional designs and colors, but also have their members operating the vehicles, providing a revenue stream for the nation or band and the individuals and their families. Mm-hmm. Having as well a brief presentation on board about the history of the nation and the band, showcasing the cultures and traditions of our First Nations would, in my opinion, be quite a tangible step on the path to reconciliation. So let me, let's just look, deal with the technical issue for a second. Please. You have an electric uh, uh, boat, a uh, vessel. You would have to carry passengers. You have the s- speed of the Fraser River itself. And I'm going to assume we got people on board. You're going to have to have uh, life jackets and, and perhaps a secondary lifeboat. I don't know. Um, can electric vessel, electric run vessel, carry that weight, deal with the, 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 just the, the current itself with the Fraser? Is the technology there to deal with all of that? So great question, and the short answer is yes, depending on the size of the vehicle. So according to Navigation Canada, the the federal oversight organization that oversees our our naval navigations, Mm -hmm. um, up to approximately 15 passengers, you're okay to operate what's called a water taxi, much like the the ferries and the water taxis that you see around the Falls Creek area and and that sort of thing. Once you go past the 15 passengers, then when you're required to have life preservatives as well as uh, an external vessel that would be used in case of an emergency. Okay. Having the all-electric boats that are designed and manufactured right here in Kelowna along with, uh, as we heard yesterday about the Hexagon Purus building zero emission trucks. The battery technology is there. Uh, and in Maple Ridge, we also have Molly Cell, which are developing ultra high power cells for the batteries. So British Columbia as a whole is positioned to be a world leader and, and demonstrate the future of zero emissions transportation of people and goods. Uh, we don't have a lot of time here. We've got about a minute left here. How would it be paid for? I mean, would this be about, about this would be all public dollars you're thinking here? Or there, is there a possibility for private investment as well? When you're talking about TransLink, which is public, but any idea in regards to how the finances would work? Uh, in in my proposal and in my vision, it would need to be a collaborative effort between First Nations, between municipalities that are along the river, the federal and the provincial government, as well as, of course, the opportunity for private investors to be able to uh, invest into the service. 
as it will be a revenue earning service and it will be operated uh, on its own. I have reached out to TransLink and they are aware of my proposal. There's really been not much movement. It was brought up to them back in 2019 at the TransLink 2050 elected officials forum. Uh, I also proposed the same to the Port of Fraser Vancouver mayor's table as well as Metro Vancouver's Climate Action Committee when I served on there the last term. Uh, and I've gone so far as to share the idea with Minister Heyman and his staff and even Fortis BC because they do operate an, a power and electric company in the interior uh, and everyone is excited however thus far there haven't been any real tangible movement or serious consideration of the concept so this is why I'm pondering uh, if the possibility is there for a private enterprise to consider investing into it and starting the service. Council Yusuf thank you for your time today. Pleasure. Federal government uh, announced the approval of a contentious container port expansion project at Roberts Bank, of course, uh, located in Delta. Uh, the Roberts Bank uh, Terminal 2 project uh, can proceed, but it is subject to 370 legally binding conditions uh, to protect the environment. Uh, the, the expansion itself is expected to increase the port's capacity. Uh, by 50%, and of course, uh, the terminal project is estimated to increase that that 50% increase would be out in Delta, British Columbia, to Austin specifically. There has been a lot of opposition to the project from a variety of organizations. This has been a project that has been proposed and planned for a very long time, and one of the key individuals behind all of it is, of course, Robin Sylvester, who is the president and chief executive officer of the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority, and he joins us now. Mr. Sylvester, thank you for for joining us today. Hi, yes. Thank you for the invitation. Good to so be on the show. How, how significant is this announcement today for the region itself in regards to economic impact, but also just how significant is the announcement itself? Well, this is a really significant milestone. As you, as you said in your introduction, this is a, it's a project that's been going through environmental assessment process for a long time, in fact, nearly 10 years. It's been going through the federal environmental assessment process, the most robust environmental assessment process in Canada. And it's a really key milestone for the project to get the positive decision from the federal government today, allowing the project to move forward. And it, it's significant for the region. I mean, it's going to mean moving forward towards construction, creating 18,000 construction jobs. And more than that, once the project's operational, 17,000 good paying supply chain related jobs in the region that are going to last into the long term. So it's very significant for the lower mainland, for BC, and for Canada. We're a trading nation. We need this capacity. Um, how confident are you that you can uh, address the 370 uh, legally binding conditions uh, to this project? Well, through the 10 years of the environmental assessment process, we've been working really closely with the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Um, so we've, we, we're very familiar with all the conditions and we're very confident that we can comply with them. They're, they're going to ensure that the project is built in a way that doesn't cause environmental harm. And that's been our goal all along as well. We're an arm's length federal agency. We're here to support Canada's trade and do it without negatively impacting the environment. So we're, we're very comfortable with the conditions that have been set out. It's an appropriate process and a good Good, good place to be. Many of uh, you know those that opposed have said, "Look, the, the expansion should go somewhere else. That we we, we should perhaps consider Prince Rupert. Uh, there's lots of room up there, uh, and there's a lot of uh, there's a robust uh, um, port there, growing significantly. Uh, you've got access to rail lines as well, as well as highways as well. Why not move this expansion to the north? What do you what, what do you say to that argument? 
Well, I think the reality is that we need capacity in both ports. And it's, it's a long, complicated, robust process to move through these environmental assessment stages to be able to create capacity. There's no other project that's anywhere near being ready to provide the capacity that Canada needs other than Terminal 2, which is why we're so pleased to have this decision to allow us to move the project forward today. And as I was saying, we're a trading nation. I mean, this is all about accommodating growth in Canada's trade, both imports and exports. We will need capacity in Prince Rupert, I have no doubt, in the long term as well. And it will take them significant time to create that capacity. This is just a great announcement today because it can give Canada and our trading partners confidence that we're going to create the capacity for trade on the west coast of Canada into the future. How do you bring along those that have been opposed, whether they be uh, you know, certain uh, members of First Nations communities, uh, environmental groups, uh, scientists, uh, even members of unions? There has been a robust opposition to this project. How do you bring them along, uh, or does that matter now because you have received your approval? Well, I, I think we've got the approval in no small part because we've got really good support from so many different stakeholders. I mean, you, you highlight First Nations, and I mean, we've been consulting with nearly 50 First Nations guided by the federal government on who we need to consult with and guided by the federal government to seek accommodation agreements with 27 of those nations. We have accommodation agreements in place with 26 of them, and we're still talking to the 27th nation. So we actually have really good support. We have 26 nations who are supporting or have given consent to the project We've had very robust consultation, and we're in a good place. Similarly, on the environmental side, as you were saying, we've got 370 conditions that we will be complying with. They've been put in place through Canada's most robust sort of process from an environmental assessment point of view, and they're there to ensure that the environment's protected. So I would say, really, this project's in a very good place to move forward with strong support from a wide spectrum of stakeholders. Um, and conditions in place that will make sure the environment is protected. Mm-hmm. So the approval means it's a, there will be a three-berth marine container terminal uh, being constructed in deep subtidal waters. Give me a sense of the construction timeline because it's, the approval is one thing. Uh, it's still an engineering feat that as well that, that has to occur. Walk me through the timeline moving forward in regards to what we can see. Absolutely. No, it, it, it's, this is going to be a really big project, as you indicate. So we, really, we've, we've still got sort of a couple of years of work to do to get all the final permits in place. This decision to, that's been announced today is the, the big milestone on, in that process. But we now need to complete the process with the Department of Fisheries. We need to complete the provincial process that's also nearing the final stages. And we need to put all the construction and financing arrangements in place. And then we need to move into the construction phase for what is a very big project, um, which of itself will take probably five or so years. So it's still some time before we're going to see boxes moved on the new terminal. Um, but the, the thing about today is we can now start to focus on all those things and start to move towards that goal of actually having that extra capacity, that ability to have a more supply chain capacity and a more reliable supply chain for all Canadians. Do we remain competitive with other West Coast ports uh, in the United States? I think of Long Beach and many others. Are we remaining competitive or do we got some headwinds coming our way as well? Because it is always a very competitive industry. It is a competitive industry, and I mean, we're certainly very conscious that shippers of goods have choices that they can make. But also, what I'm very reassured by, and I'm feeling much more positive today because of this decision, is that we know that the capacity in Canada is competitive. Part of our concern has been that without this capacity, Canada would become reliant on those ports to the south of us, and that's not a good place for us to be as Canadians. We want to have trading capacity in Canada for Canada's trade with countries all around the world and across the Pacific. So I think this actually this, this decision today underwrites our competitiveness. It 
gives us the ability to create more capacity for our growing trade and to have that capacity in Canada where we know we can be competitive. We've had strong growth in the West Coast ports, both here and in Prince Rupert, and we continue to compete. All of our partners, whether it's the terminal operators or the railways, continue to compete very successfully to deliver goods to Canadians and even to some extent into the U.S. So this actually is a good news story about competitiveness for Canada. Uh, Mr. Silvestro, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jess. Appreciate the opportunity. Let's talk taxes for a moment. Yesterday afternoon, late yesterday, Metro Vancouver's Board of Directors approved a motion to rework their budget uh, to lower um, rising taxes on you. Can you believe that? And for the entire uh, nearly 2.8 million residents who live here uh, in Vancouver, the motion basically tells uh, staff at Metro Vancouver uh, to overhaul the 2024 budget uh, and find ways to lower those fees because so many of you out there are dealing with significantly uh, a significant increase in property taxes from your respective municipalities. They're trying to find a way to lower some of those, uh, the increase from the Metro Vancouver uh, board area in regards to some of the costs that they have. Joining me now to talk a little bit about reworking Metro Vancouver's budget so they can lower taxes, which is rarely ever discussed, is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam and the director of the Metro Vancouver Metro Vancouver Board Finance Committee. Brad, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jazz. Uh, generally, when we talk about uh, tax increases and taxes, every year it does go up, whether it be 1% or 2% or in some cases over 10%, uh, as we saw this year for municipal taxes. Walk me through some of the thinking for the Metro Vancouver Board and how you got to this conversation where you actually want to overhaul the system a little bit and try to reduce these increases, the significant increases they would have been. Well, I think it's a realization that we need to be doing everything within our power to minimize property tax increases, not only in our own member municipality. And as you know, in Port Coquitlam, I'm incredibly proud of the work that we've done with the lowest property taxes out of the 21 cities in Metro Vancouver. But there is also a regional piece to this. And a lot of people probably are unaware of that. It comes on your municipal property tax bill. Uh, law folks go right to the bottom. They look at the total, and, and that's it. What they may not know is that embedded in that cost is, uh, is regional property taxes that go to Metro Vancouver. And those have been going up quite significantly over the last number of years because Metro Vancouver is looking at some very significant and very expensive capital projects. Mm -hmm. And those capital projects are for important things that we need as a region, like our water and our sewer, our utilities. But there's a recognition at the Metro Vancouver board that despite the necessity of those projects, we still need to sharpen our pencils and do everything we can to reduce the impact on local taxpayers because what had been projected was very, very significant in the magnitude of a 54% increase in Metro Vancouver property taxes over the next four years, which is just not sustainable for your average resident of this region. Yeah, you're looking at, I think it was $594 uh, that people would pay in 2022, and by 2026 it would go to 1021 uh, dollars. Now, under this new conversation, this new mandate, 
to overhaul um, those fees to a certain degree for single households. What kind of increases could we see between that same period, between 2022 and 2026, under the new plan? So the new plan reduces that increase from 54% increase down to 32% increase. And I think there's more work to do, and I've said that at the Metro Vancouver Board. I'm certainly not going to reject uh, reducing the increase. I want to recognize that a lot of good work has happened. But even that is still a very significant increase. And so I think there's more work to do. Uh, There's also time. We have time between now and when those increases are expected to come. And so I've implored my colleagues to redouble their efforts to find savings, but also to look at how we ensure that uh, the revenue that the regional district requires is uh, apportioned very fairly. And one of the aspects of that is for projects that are necessitated because of the growth of this region, what is the right contribution from development to those projects? That is something that happens in local government right across this region. And it's something that the regional government is now looking at as well, is trying to make sure that the burden for all the growth and the and the resulting infrastructure to support it mm-hmm. is not just hung on the individual taxpayer, but that others are contributing to that as well, including, by the way, the provincial and the federal government who are driving a lot of those population growth numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, I think currently Metro, uh, Metro Vancouver is building or upgrading three wastewater treatment plants. Uh, including the Iono Island Wastewater Treatment Plant. Uh, You're upgrading uh, more than 500 kilometers of water mains um, uh, to obviously modernize uh, the system and obviously to deal with the seismic challenges um, or in the the case of a serious seismic event, have to deal with that. Um, Can some of the projects here be deferred uh, as part of uh, reducing that burden for taxpayers? I mean, we all would love to see all this stuff done all at once, but... Can it be deferred, and and I don't want to say kick down the road, but can it be deferred for a little while just to ease that pressure on taxpayers? That's certainly something that needs to be on the table, and in fact, they are looking at that. Um, You're right. In in a perfect world, we would be doing all the projects, all the upgrades, you know, everything that we want to see happen in our region, we would just do it. Um, But... In that scenario, you're not taking into equation what is the financial impact to taxpayers. Now, you know, there's, there's a range there. There are some projects that are, you know, absolute requirements because they, they get to the core functioning of this region. And, you know, at the end of the day, people want to be able to flush their toilets. They want to be able to turn on the tap and have water come out. And so there are, there's things that, you know, you just have to bite the bullet and, and get done. Mm-hmm. There are others that uh, maybe they can wait a little bit longer. Maybe there is a sequencing of it uh, to try and soften the impact as well. The other thing that I'm looking at is going through the projects that we're constructing and making sure that, you know, to use an old phrase, we're not building Cadillacs when a Chevy will get the job done. 
And, you know, sometimes uh, when you bring together the various engineers and people who, uh, who are involved in putting these projects together, uh, you can get scope creep. Yeah. You can get things yeah. added that, you know, maybe are not necessary to the functioning. Maybe they're nice to have, uh, but they may not be absolutely necessary to the functionality of what that piece of infrastructure is supposed to do. And so I've always got a very close eye on that as well. Let's make sure we're, we're you know, we're not, we're not cheaping out. We're not causing ourselves problems down the road, but we're also not over swinging and, you know, building something palatial that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Brad, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much for having me, Jess. Well, the final hours of Ramadan, the holy month in which Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset, uh, is here. The long days of fasting, of course, can be extremely challenging uh, for for many Muslims, especially in a very busy 24-7 world. I thought I'd catch up with our good friend Haroon Khan. He is a trustee of the Al-Jamia Masjid uh, in Vancouver, an Islamic trust here in the city, and director of the Pakistan-Canada Association BC chapter. Haroon, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I, I wanted to chat with you. Uh, I think many of our listeners are aware of Ramadan, but I have always, uh, you know, when you and I have talked about just uh, making that sacrifice of, of fasting sunrise to sunset, uh, give me a sense from you and, and your family and friends, you know, in a busy 24-7 world, what's it like fasting during the day when you've got so many other demands uh, uh, that, you know, all of us as adults have from work to, to family? What's it like? Well, you know, uh, Chaz, it really reinforces a sense of uh, self-discipline. Um, you're, you're, you enter into a spiritual state. Uh, so you go about your day. You, still, you you do your work, you go to school, you uh, you do your projects, whatever the case may be, um, you, you, keep, you keep keeping on. Um, but during that time, by choice, we don't eat, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't do any of the things that people would normally do in the course of the day. And uh, in fasting, you, you develop a, a certain sense of uh, spirituality, uh, a sense of understanding, compassion, uh, and a real awareness uh, of the world around you. How challenging is it? I mean, do you fast uh, most times during Ramadan? Do you participate in that? I certainly do, yeah. No, not, and I've been doing it since I was a kid. So for, for me, it's kind of rooted in, in my being. And for, for many of the Muslims that do it, but for, for those who are uninitiated and who don't understand it, uh, Ramadan it basically marks the period where the, the Quran, the holy verses of the Quran, were, were revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him. And, uh, and so during this time, you, 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 put, you concentrate more on prayer, you concentrate on your spirituality, and bit by bit, you, uh, 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 because you're no longer in, in the regular habit, you pull away from uh, f- from the rest of the world, the rest of life, and uh, uh, and in in so doing, uh, uh, you develop a stronger character. Uh, uh, the self discipline plays a lot into it, but you become kinder, you become more compassionate, you become more understanding, and uh, and it's a special time that you you feel a great, deep, and abiding love for your family, for your friends, for your loved ones. 
and for all of humanity. Um, are younger a younger generation participating as much as you did as a kid? Because it's, it's a different world. Uh, in some things change, some things don't. I understand that, um, but there is a different type of world. Much more demanding. It's faster paced, uh, and to to bring in um, a, a religious tradition that has been around for a very long time. Sometimes it's a little challenging for, uh, to bring along a younger generation. Are they participating uh, as are, much as say the older generation is? They are. Part- participating at an amazing level so many kids so many young people so many you know uh, teenagers college people they've been uh you, you go feet first into it uh it, it's a special time because it does concentrate you like nothing else and uh, um you know to, to see the youth to see the kids see my own children my own children uh, uh, come with me to the mosque, and uh, you know, at the Al Jamia Mosque in Vancouver, it's the first mosque uh, in BC. It was established 60 years ago uh, by my dad and, uh, uh, and and many other volunteers. And I've been going there since I was a child, and now you know my children have been going since they were they were toddlers and diapers, and now they're taller than me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they're going, and they'll bring their children eventually. So, you know, so it's a cycle of life. So uh, uh, you, you, it's a special place, uh, a mosque, a special place to gather. And every day uh, uh, we, we serve an iftar. So with the opening uh, meal after the fast is, uh, is uh, concluded for the day, uh, uh, coinciding with sunset, you know, you have fruit, dates, water, juice, and then you, 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 do, you do an initial prayer, and then we, we serve a full dinner. And uh, we, we serve approximately over 300 meals a day. So in this month, we've served close to 10,000 meals out of that month. So tonight, when iftar happens, what time would you be eating, roughly? Well, uh, around uh, a little after 8.30, uh, 8.30 what time we got here? It's 4.53 now, so what, 8, 8? Yeah, yeah, so uh, 8 to 8, uh, 8.18. So 8:18, does that change yeah. every night then? Does it, is, every does... night, every night, because it's all based on uh, on the lunar calendar and, and essentially the placement of the sun. So sunset changes every day. So, right. so is, is there a significant change? Is it one of a fifth, 10 minutes, five minutes, or is it significant? Yeah, well, 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 no, no, it's minute by minute. So at the, at the beginning, so like a month ago when, when we started, the mm-hmm. fast ended at 7.30 p.m., Mm-hmm. And then every day it would it would go go forward another minute another minute and so now and and sometimes a bit more a minute or two minutes and uh, and so now at the end of it it's now eight eighteen so forty eight minutes uh, forty six minute difference uh, from the beginning and Ramadan yeah. correct me if I'm wrong Ramadan comes to an end the month of Ramadan comes to an end uh, tomorrow it sure does yeah so it sure does and uh, so that, that that coincides and if you look at timing wise. Uh, uh, the, you get up earlier, so uh, so uh, as well. So in the morning, the sunrise. Now the days are getting longer, so you, you, so the fast starts earlier. So uh, so it's an interesting time, and so every year it goes back two weeks approximately. So a few years ago, it was in the in the in the heat of summer, June, July, August. We'd be fasting in, in thirty degree weather. That's challenging. Weather. That's challenging. Oh, that's- Sure, sure. But we, we've done it. But now here we are. It's been a month of really cool weather, rainy, you know. And uh, but so the, the fasting in and of itself, it's you know, it's still a challenge. But um, at some point, we'll be fasting in the snow. 
will be fasting in December, in November, in October, and so on and so forth. So 33 years from now, Jazz, um, uh, we, we will be fasting on the exact same day that we're fasting today. Yeah, so, there you go. So, there's, so there's amazing coincidences, the challenges of it, and uh, it, uh, so it really, uh, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting journey. Yeah, absolutely. Haroon, thank you for your time, and once again, Ramadan comes to an end tomorrow evening. Yes, it does. All yeah. right. So Ramadan Mubarak, everyone, and uh, you know, lots of love to everyone. And uh, uh, yeah, and uh, thank you, thank you, Josh, thanks for, for your time. Me. That is Haroon Khan, trustee of Al Jamia Masjid and director of the Pakistan Canada Association. The Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project uh, is moving forward after it received approval from the federal government subject to a 370 uh, legally binding conditions to protect the environment. The project um, is expected to increase the port's capacity by 50%. Uh, Port CEO Robert um, Robin Sylvester uh, was on our show at 4 o'clock and he certainly talked about uh, the construction um, uh, schedule moving forward and uh, how significant Significant uh, the decision was. The announcement came today. And joining me now to talk a little bit about the announcement is Jonathan Wilkinson, Canada's Minister of Natural Resources. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, first and foremost, how difficult of a decision was this? Uh, to approve a project is one thing, but it is also subject to 370 legally binding conditions. How difficult of a decision was this moving forward? Well, it was a decision that required a lot of thought and work. Um, I mean, clearly there is an economic uh, argument for this project. Uh, We will run out of container capacity by the early 1930s, and unless we actually are in a position to, um, or 2030s, and Mm -hmm. if we're not in a position to expand capacity, we effectively will have a cap on exports from the West Coast of Canada. So that's a pretty pretty dire uh, circumstance. But by the same token, we have to ensure that if projects are to proceed, they, they are proceeding in a manner that's consistent with environmental sustainability. And so we took a long time working through some of the concerns that had been raised, legitimate concerns, relating to things like potential impacts on salmon and, and southern resident killer whales. And, uh, and under the 373 conditions reflect uh, a lot of thought and a lot of work as to how we can ensure that uh, we address those concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh- there were, as you say, a significant amount of concern over the environment. Uh, you had uh, scientists, you had environmental organizations, uh, you had uh, First Nations communities speak up, you had uh, municipalities like Delta, Richmond, and White Rock speak up on this issue uh, as well. Uh, what do you say to those uh, groups, uh, individuals, and communities who oppose this from day one moving forward? Can you bring them along, or is this going to be contentious up until one day this, uh, this expansion is completed? Well, I think in the case of of some of the the organizations and groups you noted, they have been brought along. So, you know, the port actually has uh, impact benefit agreements with 26 out of 28 of the most affected First Nations. And the two that are most impacted, Musqueam and and Tawasin, Musqueam is very supportive of the project and and, uh, Tawasin has given its consent to the project and said that they they believe the mitigation measures are, uh, are sufficient. So they have been brought along, and that's been very important, obviously. Um, we have tried to work with uh, many in the environmental community to ensure that we are hearing their concerns and we are putting in place conditions that will address them. I, I was a former minister of fisheries and oceans and worked very hard on the on the, the plan to save the southern resident killer whale. I was the minister of environment for almost three years, working on a range of issues uh, that are relevant to this. Um, and simply this project wouldn't have been approved if we hadn't 
um, thoughtfully addressed those things and believed that we had really mitigated the impact. Mm-hmm. Could this expansion not have occurred in Prince Rupert instead because there's such significant opposition to the um, the particular project? Could this project not have been replicated in, 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 a, in a community like Prince Rupert where they do have a port, it is expanding, you have access to highways and rail? Could this not have been replicated there? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because people often say that. And what I would say to you is the Port of Prince Rupert is an important uh, resource for the province and for the country, but it is a much smaller port than the Port of Vancouver, much, much smaller. Um, And it only has one of the railways that runs there. The Port of Vancouver has both. Um, That makes it fundamentally different in character um, to the Port of Prince Rupert. I would also say that the increase in, in the need for exports is almost certainly going to require a significant expansion of the Port of Prince Rupert as well. So it's not really an either-or situation. It's actually trying to ensure that we are in a position to do things like seize the opportunities that are enabled by a low-carbon transition, so exporting critical minerals and hydrogen and a range of other things that, uh, that Canada can help the world with. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in regards to the 370 legally binding conditions, can you give me a sense of sort of what those conditions are? I don't expect you to go through all 370, but broadly speaking, what are the things that the government yeah. uh, is sort of brought up in regards to, to concern for, for the government to be concerned about? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And if I was going to go through all 373, we'd be here for a long yeah, time. But that's right. for example, in the context of, of uh, habitat for Chinook salmon, which is obviously an important issue, um, there is a requirement to, uh, for habitat that may be impacted by the project to more than offset that through, uh, through habitat creation. And, and so really looking to not only uh, mitigate, but also to actually create uh, more in the way of habitat. Um, there's also a whole range of, of conditions around the construction period and how we manage it so it doesn't interfere with salmon and with marine mammals. On, on, on the whale side of things, um, it's about a requirement for effectively no net new noise in the Salish Sea because noise is the big issue for southern resident killer whales. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially we're saying this project can't create more problems for them. The same thing is true with respect to the sandpiper and biofilm, which is a whole range of conditions in there, including an adaptive management approach so that if there are impacts, the project has to stop and you have to figure out how to address them. And in the worst case, the project just has to stop. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those who say, look, the crab fisheries is one issue, that the crab fisheries are, are displaced, that you, you, you can't bring it back. What do you say to that argument? So that was uh, that was a particularly important issue, I think, for uh, for uh, Tuasin and Musqueam First Nations. Um, that's something that we've been working on with them for some period of time. I think there may be opportunities for offsetting, and there may be opportunities um, to uh, to work to ensure that the the impacts are actually um, relatively minor. But but it is one of those impacts that again has been the focus of a lot of work, particularly with the First Nations. Minister, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.